For the rest of us that are here, we're going to be continuing in our series, Relentless Truth, and we're smack dab in the middle of Titus chapter 2, and so we're going to start off our reading uh, with Titus chapter 2 as we begin our time in God's Word. If you're using the Bible in the seat in front of you, if you don't have a Bible with you, there, there is a Bible right there in front of you. We're on page 938, Titus chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 11. Please follow along with me. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Please join me as we pray and continue our worship in this way. Let's pray. God, we come before you again this morning confessing that it is only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can stand before you today. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, guide us, challenge us, comfort us and meet us where we are. As we often do, we we turn our attention to those who have not yet placed their trust in you, and we first pray for our children this morning that you have blessed our church with, and we pray that they would come to know you at a young age and that you would spare them from seasons of rebellion. Please grow in them a desire to know you, and we pray again for all those who are serving all over campus, upstairs, downstairs, uh, to the left and to the right of us. May you bring them joy, fresh joy in their service this morning. For the hurting and the weak, we pray that your peace and your strength abound. And for those that are battling sickness, as well as those that are recovering, we pray that they find comfort that comes only from you. We continue to pray for all those family members and medical staff who are caring for them. May you be their strength and their source of rest. Guide them as they care. Guide them in times of frustration, times of defeat, and for them to bring them fresh joy that abounds, strength that abounds that only comes from you. We pray for the students you've blessed our church with me, you carry them through the struggles that they face from day to day. May you continually draw them to know your grace in a saving faith. We pray for all those who are married, those with young families, and especially those who are struggling in their marriages. May you grant them wisdom. Again, point to them, reveal to them their sin. Guide them in your grace and restore their joy. And we pray for the young singles and the college students. May you sustain them during stressful times. Give them hope in their struggles and delight them in knowing your nearness. For those that are new and don't really know what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we pray that you guide them to experience that measurable joy of salvation this morning. For those that are looking for a church, I pray that they find community here they continue to follow your guidance to know you more here at, at this church. And we pray that you guide us as we study your word this morning. In the power of Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 For those of you who may be new to the Bible, the book of Titus, again, is actually a letter and that was written to this man named Titus. Paul most likely wrote this letter to Titus as well as his letter to Timothy shortly after the events recorded in the book of Acts. 
If you remember, we, we had our Acts series maybe about a year ago, and the, the book of Acts ends with Paul in prison. And tradition tells us that Paul was then released and continued on his missionary work around the Mediterranean. During this continued ministry work, Paul visited the island of Crete, one of the many places that he went to, and he preached the gospel there. People repented and believed, and the church began on this island, many churches. Then Paul left Titus to carry on the church planting work there as he continued forward so that this young church, it wouldn't just survive, but no, but that this church would thrive in this mission together. Titus is this uniquely short book in the New Testament with only three chapters and only 46 verses. This book offers some of the most condensed practical instructions for churches who desire to be healthy and growing. The overarching theme of this book, Titus, weds together the subjects of belief and practice, doctrine and deed, communicating the timeless principle the gospel is faithfully taught, or the gospel that is faithfully taught, it leads believers to understand how the gospel is also faithfully practiced. And this, here, this, is how the gospel was to reach the unreached. Not simply with just words that communicate the truth, but with words bolstered by a life of actions transformed by the gospel. Paul began this letter by first reminding Titus of the reason why he was there in Crete, to organize the churches there by how? By appointing pastors in every town. This would imply that Titus was to go to each Cretan church and to seek out those who met these important qualifications of pastor. And if he found that no one in a church met these qualifications, it implied that he was to disciple, to train up these pastoral teams according to these spiritual standards. And why was it so important for these churches to have qualified pastors? Just like today, the churches in the first century, they were plagued with people who intentionally taught a false gospel. They're described as false teachers. In summary, these false teachers were teaching a gospel plus blank kind of message. Instead of a pure gospel, the true gospel, they believed that the gospel simply wasn't enough to save alone, that they needed something else. It was a gospel plus special knowledge, hidden knowledge. It was the gospel plus certain religious diets, it was the gospel plus the Jewish rites and all the traditions, and with all those things, this would qualify them to be saved. These false gospel messages exalted human accomplishment over Christ's finished work on the cross. It ruined entire households, and it put more money into the deep pockets of these dishonest teachers. Paul tells Titus what to do in response to these false teachers. Paul tells Titus, these teachers, these false teachers must be silenced. This brings us to chapter 2. In the beginning of chapter 2 that we studied two weeks ago, or maybe last week, Paul shifts his focus away from just talking about these false teachers, but then he focuses on the church's mission, the church's response to these false teachers. He explains what it means for the church to live out sound doctrine in contrast to the false teachers and the false teachers' carnal lifestyles, their sinful, immersed lifestyles. So how is the church to know sound doctrine? The answer to this question can be summed up in one word, discipleship. He begins first by explaining the importance of discipleship for both the young and the old, for the male and the female. In verses 1 through 10, Paul communicates how everyone in the church, everyone, is to participate in discipleship together. Why? Firstly, this is God's mandate for every believer in the church. This is his command for every single person in the church. Secondly, 
This is how the church was to understand sound doctrine. Not only to understand it, but to protect it together. And thirdly, this is how the church was to grow in living out that sound doctrine in their day-to-day lives. And why were they to try to live this out? Why were they commanded to live out what they believed? It was for the sake of their gospel mission together. And now here in the last section of chapter 2, Paul explains, if you're filling in blanks, this is the first blank, Paul explains how God's grace alone, God's grace alone lays the foundation for living a God-honoring life. Again, let me read this. Paul explains how God's grace alone, we'll explain that here in a second, God's grace alone lays the foundation for living a God-honoring life. So the title of the sermon this morning is Declare the Grace of God. And again, we'll be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Let me talk about my goal this morning. If you're not a Christian this morning, we're glad that you're here. If you're looking to understand what Christians believe, exploring the Christian faith, I want to encourage you that studying about the church through the study of the Bible will teach you a whole lot about Jesus. So if you're not a Christian this morning, my hope for you this morning is that you will not only witness God's loving instruction for His church, but again, that you will be personally drawn to Jesus through the power of the gospel today. Christian, I turn to you. My hope is that you will reflect on how you yourself are communicating God's amazing grace in your everyday life. For this, I want to highlight three important areas where every Christian should declare the grace of God. This is the next blank if you're taking notes The first point that Paul makes here is, church, we must declare God's grace in our living. Again, we must declare God's grace in our living. There are many people who attempt to live an honorable life without ever coming to know Jesus and have a saving faith in Him. Many will often look at the practical instructions in the Bible and assume that if they obeyed these commands in life, that God would have to grant them access to heaven after death. What do I mean by this? And maybe before you became a Christian, you thought the same thing. So whenever you or they look at maybe the Ten Commandments, or even passages like we saw last week with instructions. They'll they'll say to themselves, okay, I need to make sure not to lie, cheat, or steal. I need to set a good example for those younger than me in the church and, and clean up my life. And if I do all these things, or or at least try my best, this will ensure my place in heaven. But to be clear, to be clear. Earning our ticket to heaven is not the point that Paul is making here in Titus. And neither is this concept of earning entrance into heaven found anywhere in the Bible for non-Christians or Christians. So some questions arise. So how then are we to gain access to heaven? Why did God give us commands that he knew we wouldn't be able to obey on our own? How are we supposed to live a God-honoring life if it's impossible to do? These are great questions, all of which are answered here in today's passage. Verse 11, Paul answers these questions by pointing believers to God's grace. In summary, Paul is explaining that God's grace, it's the foundation of all of his commands. And I have to repeat that. In summary, Paul again is explaining that God's grace It is the foundation of every single one of his commands, every single one of his instructions. In other words, all of God's practical instructions, his commands, his teachings, they cannot be followed 
without first personally experiencing God's grace through a saving faith in Jesus Christ. All of these practical instructions, commandments, and teachings were all supposed to do what? They were supposed to direct us back to God and the grace He alone can give. Why? The Bible clearly states that no one is righteous, not even one. That we are all sinners, and in our unrighteousness, we have fallen from God's perfect righteous standard. And this is what separates us from being in a right relationship with Him. And because of this, we are in bondage. We are a slave to our sin nature. We need salvation. And what makes this bad news even worse is that there is nothing we can do on our own to fix this problem. Absolutely nothing. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is no hope without God. Therefore, sinful humanity doesn't have the ability to earn salvation through good works. Romans 3.20 explains, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Again, this is what makes the bad news worse. Our sin makes us not only guilty before God, but it also points out our corruption before Him. To the point that even our best efforts, God considers them filthy rags. But what's the good news? What makes the good news so good? The good news is that this is not the end of the story. Praise God. In verse 11, Paul writes, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is that part where everyone's like, yeah right? So, uh, what does it mean that God's grace has appeared? Despite our sinfulness, despite our hopelessness, God, out of His own good favor, has rescued undeserving sinners from our bondage and our enslavement to sin. How? By sending the Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is Himself the righteousness of God, Verse 11 words it this way, the grace of God, who is Jesus Christ, appeared. The Greek word epiphino, appeared, was used in literature in this time to announce that the hero has made his sudden arrival. He's arrived, and he's present to rescue his people. In fact, we saw this same word for arrived, appeared, in Luke chapter 1. Verse 79, describing the birth of Jesus Christ, that he has appeared, he has arrived, the hero has made his entrance, and he has manifested his glorious light to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death. This is our hero. So with this word appearing, Paul is summarizing who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for all types of people. Jesus, who is righteous, lived the perfect life we could never live, which fulfilled the law on our behalf. Jesus died the death we deserved, taking on the full wrath of God upon himself, paying in full for our sin. Jesus resurrected to new life that all those who believe in him will have his righteousness, Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father that we could be seated in Him on the day of judgment. Jesus justifies anyone who believes, declaring them with His righteousness through faith in Him. And Jesus has given every believer His Holy Spirit, dwelling inside of them, making it possible for the first time, making it possible to reflect the righteousness of God in their lives. Therefore, it is only through faith in Christ alone, through the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit, 
that man can do the things that God commanded of them in the Bible. I think Paul words it best in Ephesians. He says, for by the grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's grace, Jesus, the righteousness of God, but the good news doesn't stop there. Wow. <laughs> this invitation to receive God's grace, the sure promise of salvation, and a new life in Christ is available to who? All types of people. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done in the past or where they've come from or where they live today. God's grace is made available to all through Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In verse 12, Paul continues to explain that this grace is not just the means of our salvation, this word justification, but also the means of our continued growth after salvation, this word sanctification, which is this long day-by-day day process of participating in the Holy Spirit's work of making us more and more Christ-like. Put plainly, God's grace isn't just the ticket to heaven. It is also the means by which we grow more and more, day by day, into God's character, revealed to us in the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God. Paul explains that this, grace, that this is the grace of God that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This word training that Paul uses doesn't just have in mind this common understanding of teaching. God just isn't a teacher. Rather, it communicates a type of education that involves loving discipline, like that of a parent, parental oversight, or a pastor with their pastoral guidance. And here, Paul is using personification. He's giving human-like traits and commands to inhuman things. So, with this word, grace, being a teacher, he's explaining that God's grace is this form of a teacher to every Christian. So, what is it that God's grace instructs Christians? God's grace instructs believers both negatively, in other words, what not to do, and positively, what we ought to do. Paul begins by explaining negatively that God's grace instructs Christians to, in this negative way, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This is huge. Why? Remember, those who do not know what it means to be in a saving faith, to have faith in Jesus, they are still bound by their sin. They are enslaved to their sin. In other words, they are unable to, they are not able to say no. But once someone becomes a Christian, they have God's Holy Spirit dwelling in them, allowing them to finally say no to sin. What a message this was for the people on the island of Crete who are immersed in the sin of their culture. God's grace frees them from slavery to sin, enabling them to finally renounce their former way of life and to live out a life in Christ's righteousness. God's grace also instructs Christians positively to, to what we ought to do, to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. This is what we mean when we say God transforms Christians through sanctification. Believers are transformed as they participate in God's work through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to continually turn away from sin. And as they're turning away from their sin, they're becoming 
what they already are in Christ, growing into the righteousness of Christ, growing into self-control, growing in an upright and godly life right now. So my first exhortation, the next blank here, my first exhortation, Christian, is this. Glorify God in every possible aspect of your life. (laughs) What a tall order, right? Glorify God in every possible aspects of your life. Christian, understand what Paul is emphasizing in this section. He is not simply saying that God's grace makes it possible to live a godly life now through the enabling of the Holy Spirit, but that God's grace makes it necessary not just possible, necessary to live a godly life now. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me be clear. Jesus Christ did not take on the full wrath of God on the cross, die the death that you and I deserved, resurrect from the dead, and give you his Holy Spirit so that you can have the option to live a godly life now. No. Jesus Christ appeared, bringing salvation for all types of people so that His grace will call us to renounce our former life of slavery to sin and call us to live a life of godliness right now that that is actively participating in His transforming work by His Holy Spirit. Whether this be in your workplace, in society, in your hobbies, in your interests, in your spending, both time and financially, in your rural areas, in your hometowns, in your homes, in your families, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships, in your studies, in your hopes, in your dreams, and in your life goals. Christian, determine to live your life in line with the glory of God and His will in everything out of love and reverence for Him. Church, this is what it means to glorify God in every possible aspect of your life. Praise God for His grace that makes any of this possible. The second point that Paul makes is this, another blank. Church, we must declare God's grace in our waiting. So not only are we to declare God's grace with our lives, but we're also to declare God's grace in our waiting. We see this in verses 13 and 14. Look first at verse 13. Paul explains a third way that God's grace instructs Christians. He writes that God's grace instructs Christians how to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the obvious question arises, what is it that Christians are waiting for? Technically, the question should be, Who are Christians waiting for? We're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ, who is our blessed hope, who is the glory of our great God and Savior. This tension of waiting and anticipation for Jesus' return, again, refers to that already but not yet tension in every Christian's life. The moment that a Christian repents and believes in Jesus Christ, they already in that moment, receive Christ's 100% righteousness. But this does not mean that they are perfect, nor that it means that they are sinless. That is not true. This means that in that moment, already, they have been declared righteous by God through faith and given a new nature in Jesus Christ. But they have not yet experienced the fullness of that salvation. Even though they have a new nature in Christ, they still deal with the temptations of their old nature. Paul explains that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This is what Christians mean when we use the word sanctification. This means that for the rest of their life, Christians must participate And with God's Holy Spirit's work is doing to say no to sin and to grow in this new nature, becoming zealous for good works. 
day by day in the Christian's life, Christians are being sanctified, slowly growing into that perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that was given to them. In other words, to make it even more difficult, Christians should be growing into what they already are. When he returns or upon our final breath, when we die, believers will finally be able to experience the fullness of their salvation, free at last from sin and forever in the presence of God, glorification. Waiting is a part of every Christian's life, but how believers wait for Jesus' return, it certainly matters. Again, how, how they wait, how Christians wait, it matters. Consider the example of William Miller and his followers. Miller claimed to know when Jesus would come again and gained a massive following in central Massachusetts. In 1818, he carefully, and for those of you guys listening online and can't see me, I did air quotes, he carefully studied the Bible using a formula consisting of numbers and dates found in Genesis, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation. And he concluded that Jesus would return on October 22nd, 1844. Listen to this. Close to 100,000 people devotedly followed Miller by quitting their jobs, selling all their possessions, and preparing themselves for Jesus' Christ, Jesus' return on October 22nd, 1844. They believed that Jesus would gather them up to heaven and God would somehow purify the rest of the world in some great fire. So what did they do as they prepared? They gathered for worship. Their times of meeting and worship were described as deeply emotional, exuding the passion of the tent revivals of their, their parents' generation. I like how one historian explains it. He explains it this way. As the year of the expected apocalypse neared, believers in the prophecy began to give away their belongings, abandon their crops, and sell their land. In the town of Harvard, one man sold his cows at great sacrifice because there would be no one to care for them when he was gone up. Women in Worcester area cut off their hair possibly to make it easier for Jesus to, to take them, uh, remove the ruffles from their dresses, threw or gave away their jewelry, and in some cases, everything they owned. Others broke up all their furniture, declaring that they would no longer have use for tables, chairs, or beds. Wanting to be suitably attired for heaven, Millerites, as they so called them, made long white garments for themselves that they called their ascension robes. On October 22nd, believers donned their robes. Believing that Christ would return on a mountaintop, they climbed up Mount Wachuset to wait the coming of the Lord. One respectable but arthritic old man who could not make it up the mountain, he stationed himself at the very top of the tallest apple tree in his orchard and waited out the night. Another whole family perched on the branches of an apple tree dressed in their white robes. And this report goes on and on and on. And basically it says this, that they waited. And they waited. But Christ did not come that day. Many were devastated and left impoverished because of Miller's failed prophecy. And although this is an extreme example, we see examples dating all the way back to the early church fathers in the 300s. Today, many people wait incorrectly because of their incorrect assumptions of when Jesus will return. But the Bible never intended to give a date to Jesus' return. It never did. Some have been duped into believing that if they do this or if, if they do that, their actions will somehow expedite Jesus' return date. Some misunderstand the Old Testament prophecies. I'm glad that we get to jump into that starting in January. But some people tend to misunderstand the Old Testament prophets, even like the book of Daniel, and they believe that they can speed up Jesus' return day by financially helping Israel rebuild the third temple. If they do that, Jesus has to hurry up. Others have been duped into a 1970s eschatology, an end times belief and viewpoint 
that they believe that they must keep tabs on the uprisings and the current events in the Holy Lands to figure out where we are in their personal end times calendar. Some look to the political landscape determined to identify some anti-Christ-like figure in the political party that they certainly dislike. Some others look to modern-day self-proclaimed prophets on social media and online, while some others still believe that microchips somehow relate to the mark of the beast in Revelation 13. So, how are all these different faulty beliefs reflected in how they wait? Again, since the mid-300s A.D., dozens, if not close to a hundred different historical misunderstandings of when Jesus was going to come led flocks of people to sell all their belongings, quit their jobs, left their homes and families, waiting eagerly to look for new signs of fulfillment, growing more and more anxious every day for Jesus' return. But this is not how Christians are to wait. How are faithful Christians supposed to wait? What does the Bible teach us about waiting? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 gives us the answer from last week. Christians are to relentlessly make disciples that make disciples. Your next blanks in your sermon notes. Again, Christians are to relentlessly make disciples that make disciples by teaching what accords with sound doctrine living out the new nature in Christ according to the power of His Holy Spirit. Why? So that in everything they may adorn, that is to display the doctrine of God, our Savior. Whatever your view of Jesus' return, whatever you believe, if you have compromised your participation in evangelism, if you have compromised your participation in your personal discipleship or your discipling of other people in order to somehow prepare yourself better for when Jesus returns, Christian, you have compromised your Great Commission obedience. I don't care if you're historical pre-mill. I don't care if you're dispensational pre-mill or amillennial or post-millennial. I don't care what end times view you have. I care about your obedience to the command given by Jesus Christ and to his church. Let me be clear, as I was with the Wednesday night group, I personally do not care to know the date when Jesus returns. Jesus promised to return, and I'll be joyful on whatever day that is. But I care more about myself and for your sake being found faithful when he arrives doing the very thing that he commanded his church to do, make disciples that make disciples, evangelizing the lost and taking responsibility for my spiritual growth as well as others in the church. I want to echo the words of Martin Luther when he famously said, I live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming again tomorrow. Church, relentlessly make disciples that make disciples by teaching what accords with sound doctrine and living out our nature in Christ according to the power of His Holy Spirit so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior together. Not only must Christians declare the grace of God in their living and in their waiting the third point that Paul makes clear is that Christians must also declare God's grace in their reverence of God's word. Again, declare God's grace in our reverence of God's word. In this final verse, Paul emphasizes the manner in which Titus is to declare all these instructions. This is not to declare these instructions, or Titus is not to declare these instructions from his own authority, but from the sovereign authority of God. Just as God is divinely authoritative, his word is divinely authoritative. Once a preacher moves away from God's word and begins to peddle his own thoughts, built on his own personal opinions and philosophies and offers some sort of a humanistic application, he has moved away from a position of authority. 
Therefore, the role of the faithful preacher is to present God's Word and move out of the way so that God's Word remains unhindered. Similarly, one pastor comments, no pastor has authority of any sort outside of God's Word. No matter what his training, experience, or personal abilities, he has spiritual authority only to the extent that what he says conforms with God's Word. But as with Jesus' own teaching, when a minister of God does faithfully proclaim God's Word, those who reject his teaching ultimately reject God's truth. Compared to the preceding verse, verse 15 was intended to be this abrupt, terse reminder. And this can't really be seen in the English translation. Paul's wording places a sharp emphasis on these things that Titus was to declare. Paul tells Titus that as a representative of God, a pastor, he is to proclaim these things with all the authority of God. These things certainly references the previous section in verses 11 through 14, but based on similar word usage that he used in chapter 1, it's very likely that Paul is referring to this whole letter. Both tenses of the verbs exhort and rebuke are present active imperatives. What does that mean? It indicates that Titus needs to ongoingly emphasize, he has to ongoingly highlight that both of these things he has to do in his ministry. And Paul ends this final imperative saying to Titus, let no one disregard you, no one. Some people understand this final instruction to be Paul's much-needed encouragement to Titus as he serves a great, great opposition. But I am more convinced that this final instruction was also meant to be Paul's directive for the churches in Crete. Again, this, this type of letter would have been read out loud. So although it could have been a form of Paul coaching Titus to, to not give up, to be bold, it was likely a reminder also to the Christians in Crete that Titus must be regarded, must be respected as their pastor, one who has been called by God and entrusted to proclaim the Scriptures to them, God's holy word. And sadly, a grave weakness in the church today is that too many pastors have stepped away from the authority of God's word and tried to lead with an alternative authority. Therefore, instead of faithfully proclaiming God's word, many pastors have lowered their standards in the content of what they consider a sermon. Many attempt to share jokes, to be the funny pastor, to have a, a personable authority with everyone. Oh, everyone likes that pastor. Everyone loves his jokes. Everyone wants to be around. We have to listen to him. They're listening to him. We have to listen to him. Others philosophize and theologize their personal stories, attempting to have some sort of an intellectual authority over others. Others recite their favorite poems or heartwarming snippets from Chicken Soup for the Soul in order to have some sort of an experiential authority, saying things like, I, I feel like God is telling me this, or even outright saying, God told me to tell you this church. These are all invalid sources of authority. I agree with J.I. Packer when he wrote this. He said, self-projection, that means self-centeredness, a self-reaching, all about me, it undermines and erodes authority. If by the preacher's words and by the preacher's manner focuses attention on himself, thus modeling some mode of self-absorption or self-satisfaction rather than humility, before the Bible passage that he proclaims. He makes it impossible to understand God's divine authority. So what he does not understand himself, he cannot mediate to others. Pastor in, uh, Packer elsewhere also comments, preaching that does not display the divine authority, both in its content and in its manner, is not the substance itself. 
but only a shadow of the real thing. The church should not tolerate such preaching. And yet, this form of preaching plagues the churches here on Oahu, our state, our country, and all over the world. This responsibility rests both on pastors and their congregations. Just as Titus was never to assume authority away from God's ultimate authority, his divine authority, pastors today should never assume authority away from God's authority. The product of such irresponsibility from pastors leaves local churches malnourished, unequipped for the mission, and susceptible to false teachings. And after hearing several sermons, especially recently, uh, several sermons from around the state, uh, from the local church pastors around here, I can't help but stand up and want to just shout, you had the chance to proclaim the gospel, and you missed it. You had the chance to proclaim the hope that doesn't come from your actions, but God's actions, and you squandered it for a joke, for an illustration about how you felt this week. You missed the chance to proclaim Jesus Christ. Shame. The church needs pastors who will declare these things, as well as exhort and rebuke with all authority. This is God's divine authority. Likewise, this responsibility rests not just on pastors, but also the church. Local congregations of Christians. This brings me to my final exhortation. Christian, the final blank for today. Christian, determined to be a lifelong learner. A lifelong learner as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Congregations, this means each and every one of you that is a Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ, you each have the responsibility to, these are four things, learn correct doctrine. You have the responsibility to, to understand your role within guarding this doctrine. Number three, Christian, you have this responsibility to grow in discerning error false teaching, and improper sources of authority. And fourthly, Christian, you have the responsibility to display a humble confidence in Christ in how we stand against improper sources of authority and false teaching. One scholar put it this way, good theological teaching is indispensable in supplying both the why, which is the motivation, and the how, the enablement of God of practical Christian living as well as defining the what, the good works, of expected behavior. He says this, practical Christian living can only be fully understood in the context of who God is and what He has done. Christians need to spend their entire lives learning how to remain nourished in good theological teaching that is framed within the context of who God is and what He has done, what He is currently doing, and what He has promised to do in the future. This is what it means to be a lifelong learner as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Again, you need to know proper doctrine in order to identify it. You need to understand your role and how God has gifted you to this local church in order to help protect your brothers and sisters here against false doctrine. You need to continue to grow in discerning which sermons are predicated on moral humanism rather than the divinely authoritative, grace-enabling, life-transforming message of the gospel. And finally, you need to also know how to discern, discern improper sources of authority and how to stand against them with humble confidence that only comes through Christ to call them to repentance. Christian, determined to be a lifelong learner as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This morning, you have heard many instructions that were directed at Christians. But if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to remind you 
It's impossible to follow these instructions with your own abilities. If you attempt to earn your own goodness apart from receiving the grace of Jesus Christ, you will be left frustrated, numb, and even more embittered in your sin. So I want to say this as lovingly as I possibly can. You can't declare what you do not know and what you have not yet experienced. Yet. If you do not know what it means to be in a right relationship with God in Jesus Christ, my hope for you this morning is that you will not leave here without first coming to talk to me, Pastor Matt, any of our deacons, about what this means to follow Jesus Christ. My hope again is that this morning that you will personally be drawn to Jesus through the power of the gospel today, not by your might, by the mighty work of God completed on the cross. Turn to Christ today. He will have you. Christian, I turn to you now. Again, you have heard many instructions that were directed at you. But again, I, I want to clarify this because I don't want you to walk away with the wrong understanding. I want to clarify. It is God's grace alone that lays the foundation for living a God-honoring life. The only reason why you can do any of these things that we talked about this morning is because of Jesus Christ, who is the grace of God who appeared, bringing salvation for all types of people. Through his Holy Spirit, God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. And his grace also trains us in how we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. And pastors must declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority so that God's word and instruction are not disregarded. Church, we must declare God's grace in our living, in our waiting and in our reverence of God's word. Christian, we do this by glorifying God in every aspect of our lives, relentlessly making disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples, and determining to be a lifelong learner as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Church, this here, this is what it means to declare the grace of God. Praise Him.